The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Mark 13 at verse 14. Hear the word of God. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, And the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels to gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender... And puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, stay, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servant in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his word. Well, this is quite a chunk of scripture to bite off to try to preach one sermon on. I'm going to give it my best shot. Pastor Walker and I were discussing this a few weeks ago, and the the plan that Tucker and Chris and I had planned, and we agreed that, well, we think we 
probably should have divided Mark 13 into a couple more sermons, but we're doing our best with it, and we're going to try to do an overview of this text. Pastor Walker began in Mark 13 the other week looking at this prophetic teaching of Jesus about things that were to come. It's commonly called the Olivet Discourse because Jesus taught it to his disciples from the Mount of Olives as they looked back at Jerusalem and across the Kidron Valley, and they had just come from Jerusalem. And in, uh, in, in the beginning of the sermon, Chris talked about the two questions that the disciples asked at the beginning in, in Matthew, in Mark 13, verse 4. They say, tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? It's interesting, in Matthew's account, in Matthew 24, verse 3, you see a greater clarity that the disciples are asking about the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, which they associate with the return of Christ or the end of all things. And there, Matthew records the questions in in these ways. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus had just told them that the temple was going to be torn down. There wouldn't be one stone left upon another. The disciples think that this is all the same event at the end of time. And so one of the most difficult things about the Olivet Discourse is what parts are speaking to the destruction of Jerusalem by Rome in A.D. 70, which took place historically, and we're going to talk about that, and which parts of this prophecy are simply about the end of time when Jesus returns. It's important for us to remember this very common prophetic technique that you see in the Old Testament, what we call the prophetic perspective or prophetic foreshadowing or foreshortening, where the prophet is speaking certain things, and it's, uh, it's almost like he's looking ahead and seeing mountain peaks and speaking about certain things, and if trying to understand and interpret those mountain peaks, not knowing, is that a distant mountain or a near one? And from the prophetic point of view, which kind of draws them all together and speaks about them all at once, you don't know how far the valley is, so to speak, between those peaks. Is it a couple years? Is it no time at all? Is it a thousand years? Many of the prophecies about the first advent of Christ, the first coming of Christ, were like that. And it's interesting, sometimes Jesus takes a prophetic statement and he only repeats part of it because other parts of it are about his return and he's speaking about his first coming. And so these two events to the disciples, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the return of Christ seemed like they were the same event, but we know that they were very distant time now from our perspective. And because of these difficulties in knowing which time certain sentences or words apply to, we must approach interpreting this text with a great sense of humility and charity toward others who might disagree. There, we, we might say that there are three main approaches to this discourse, which, by the way, is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and there are differences between the two, depending on what audience they're writing for. One interpretation, we could say, is a futurist interpretation. 
and taking almost everything as future, as all about the return of Christ. So in this view, often you have Jerusalem restored, the temple rebuilt, you have the abomination of desolation having a final fulfillment, you have people fleeing at the end of time, according to the words here. In other words, saying it all applies to the future. The second approach is what's called the preterist approach, which applies it to the past. And there are different degrees of those who would take that view. Some see everything here as, and we'll see when we get to certain texts that you say, well, that's got to be about the return of Christ. Well, there are ways to interpret it as the destruction of Jerusalem. Not saying that those people who hold that preterist viewpoint don't believe in the return of Christ. They just would say that it's not being taught here. And then the most common view is to say there are some things that apply to Jerusalem's destruction in this text, and then there are some things that are that distant mountain peak, the second coming of Christ. And that's my view and the view of the pastors of our church, and and many evangelicals take that view. I want to look at this under two main points. The first is this. Let us see God's great judgments on the earth yet his keeping power for his people. God's great judgments on the earth, yet God's keeping power for his people. And we see that in verses 14 to 23. I'm not going to read all of this again, but my view is that these verses are describing Jerusalem's destruction in 70 AD. And Especially a strong argument for this can be made from comparing Matthew and Mark's accounts, which are more cryptic. Notice how in verse 14, uh, Mark records it. But when you see the abomination of desolation, that's a phrase from Daniel, standing where he ought not to be or standing where it ought not to be. And then he has in our translation in parenthesis, let the reader understand Matthew has a the similar phrase, let the reader understand. In other words, Matthew and Mark are giving clear indication that they are speaking cryptically. They are using words. It's like the writer of the book of Revelation when, when John talks about Babylon, and you know that he's speaking cryptically of Rome. But there were reasons why the biblical authors didn't want to use certain words. They didn't want to Uh, upset the authorities too much, yet Luke, in speaking to a Gentile audience and somehow not needing to be as cryptic as Matthew and Mark, when you see the parallel account in Luke 21, 20, this is how Luke records the meaning. He takes these Jewish terms and he translates them for a Gentile audience. And he says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. That phrase is Luke's translation of the abomination of desolation. When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. And then later on in verse 22, he says, For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Remember when Jesus near the end of his ministry, described words of judgment for Jerusalem in Matthew 23. Now, 
the fact that these verses I'm going to explain in a way that show that they have been fulfilled doesn't rule out future tribulation. In fact, in Revelation 7:14, the Apostle John, and we see these saints, these are the ones who coming out of the great tribulation or great tribulation. They have washed their robes and have made them white in the blood of the blood of the Lamb. Revelation was written most likely decades after the Gospel of Mark. It was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. Uh, We know that tribulation has occurred throughout the church age, and it is very likely that there will be a future great tribulation before the return of Christ associated with Antichrist and so forth. But these verses in the Olivet Discourse, I believe, refer to Jerusalem, and we're going to see uh, what I mean by that. Let me look at our verses by asking some questions. One is this. What is the sign that Jesus gives his disciples to alert them of the impending destruction of the temple and Jerusalem? Well, it's this phrase, the abomination of desolation. Or when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies. If we take it, and there are different scholars who write about different fulfillments of this. In, um, in 168 B.C., the Greek ruler Antiochus Epiphanes uh, conquered Judea and Jerusalem, conquered this city, and built an altar to Zeus in the holy place and offered a pig on the altar, something that would be so uh, desolating and so profane to a good Jew. And certainly that would be considered an initial fulfillment of this. And the Jews considered this a fulfillment of what Daniel wrote about. But no doubt this fulfillment that Jesus speaks about is a future fulfillment of that. And it's interesting that the different ways that each of the accounts talk about uh, Mark says, when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, And in Matthew's account, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, and in Luke, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, how are we to reconcile these? My reconciliation is that this does not require an altar per se built in the holy place or in the holy of holies. Jerusalem itself was considered a holy city. And to see the army surrounding it and then penetrating Jerusalem and see the, uh, the uh, ensigns and the eagles of the Roman soldiers, which by a good Jew was considered an idolatrous image in the holy place, in the city of Jerusalem, and see the temple destroyed by these Roman le- legions, certainly that's a fulfillment of this uh, desolating abomination. It was an object of hatred and revulsion to the Jews, and it would have signified an idolatrous heathen army. And uh, when they finally, when the Roman legions finally did subdue Jerusalem, they brought their ensigns into the temple and sacrificed sacrifices to them when they proclaimed Titus as the imperator. The Jewish historian Josephus was 
accompanying General Titus when all this took place, and his history records this. I'm not going to quote a lot of that, but he records all of this that took place. And so we understand that this idea of this abomination standing where he ought not to be, it doesn't have to be limited to the temple itself. It refers to Jerusalem as a whole, the entire locality of the holy city of Jerusalem surrounded by armies, clearly a very visible sign. Well, then what is this? I'm still on point number one, but I have sub points. What is this command in verse 15 to flee? Let the one who is on the housetop not go down nor enter into his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. There's all this instruction, very specific instruction Jesus gives about fleeing. And you think about Jewish houses in Jerusalem that had a flat roof and People would often sit or stand or rest on their roofs and usually had an exterior stairway to go down. And the idea that they might be up there and see something would make perfect sense. Jesus is saying, don't even take time to go into your home and pack your suitcase. Flee. Now, there are those who would say that this is all going to be fulfilled in a future time and in a future way. But it's so interesting how specific it is to the housing in that day, to the culture of Jerusalem and the Jewish culture there. In fact, um, the, the prayer in verse 18, pray that it might not happen in winter, Matthew's version has, or on the Sabbath, because the good Jew in, in Matthew's day, and writing in that Jewish context, would have thought it was wrong to go any distance on the Sabbath day. Now, there's a lot of history about this all being fulfilled, um, the Christian historian Eusebius writes about this whole account and says it was fulfilled by the Christians when um, this whole Jewish uprising was taking place in A.D. 66, 67, 68, 69. There were a period of years that this uprising was taking place, and At one point, the Jewish armies, the Roman armies, surrounded Jerusalem, and then they withdrew for a time. And that's when, historically, many or most of the Christians in in Jerusalem knew that that was the sign being fulfilled. That's what Eusebius says. And these Christians fled to uh, the little town of Pella, which is east of the Jordan, in the Transjordan area, east of the Sea of Galilee, to the mountains there. In other words, Jesus was referring to fleeing to mountains. They didn't flee to mountains right around Jerusalem because there were Romans everywhere there. They fled to the Transjordan area, and the church, for the most part, was spared these events. They escaped. And then, after this short time, the Roman legions again surrounded Jerusalem and destroyed it completely. Um, And so we see that they were commanded to flee. Well, the next thing we ask is, how could this, how could these events be described as great tribulation or such tribulation? Verse 19, for in those days there will be such tribulation as had not been from the beginning of the creation that God created 
until now and never will be. Then it goes on to talk about the Lord cutting short the days. Some of the objections to this being fulfilled by the destruction of Jerusalem are, well, how could that be the great tribulation? Um, When you think about what happened in that terrible siege, approximately a million Jews were killed by famine or other terrible means uh, during that time. And another approximately million Jews went into captivity by Rome. Um, And you might say, well, that was a great tribulation, but it wasn't the tribulation, the great tribulation. Wasn't the Holocaust a worst tribulation? Of course, there are those who say, and that remind us as well, the greatest tribulation we could say in history was the tribulation of the flood of Noah's time. In terms of anything surpassing that, what could, have, what could have surpassed only eight people being spared? The flood was the worst tribulation in all history. I like to think about what various writers talk about, that the greatness of this tribulation was not a reference to tribulation in terms of greatness of scope or magnitude, but rather a tribulation that was so unique in its quality because... And essentially, the covenant people of God were being judged. And Luke calls it the days of vengeance. It's a fulfilling of Jesus' prophetic condemnation of the city that had rejected him. The great um, theologian Lorraine Bettner remarked in this, says, There have been, of course, other periods of tribulation, of suffering, in which greater numbers of people were involved and which continued for longer periods of time. But considering the physical, moral, and religious aspects, suffering never reached a greater degree of awfulness and intensity than the siege of Jerusalem. And then he goes on to say, nor have so many people ever perished in the fall of any other city. We think of the atomic bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima as causing the greatest mass horror of anything in modern times. Yet only about one-tenth as many people were killed in Hiroshima as in the fall of Jerusalem. And he goes on to talk about the great uh, anguish of the the people, the great uh, terrible things that were done in the city as the siege went on. And he says, no wonder it was, there shall be great tribulation, such as was not from the beginning of the world to this time, nor ever shall be. It's interesting that it does place this tribulation in the middle of time, speaking never before or never again, not at the very end of time when everything was coming to an end with the return of Christ. So it's not a problem for me to see this great tribulation has already been fulfilled. Now, I don't have a problem with a future great tribulation to come as well. But it's interesting, verse 20 says, and if the Lord had not cut short the days. What does this mean for the days to be cut short? He says, uh, no human being would have been saved, but for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. The siege of Jerusalem was approximately from April through September and apparently, again, the various historians that refer, that refer to this say that there were a number of factors that contributed to the siege being radically shortened. Um, it was cut short by divisions within the Jews. 
by the what is called the fratricidal slaughter within the city of Jerusalem, brother against brother, uh, the famine that was pre- present, and and also you could almost say the direct intervention of God in that the general Titus was disposed to clemency. He didn't want to cause any more suffering that he had to. He was eager to return to Rome for various reasons. And there was also this historical fact that in a very unexpected way, the various Jewish strongholds that were held by Jewish zealots um, were suddenly abandoned and apparently they could have stood, withstood um, siege in these strongholds for a, must, a much longer period of time. But for the elect, God's people, those who already had come to faith in Christ, or maybe this could also include, of course, those who were yet to come in Christ, to, to faith in Christ. For God's people, these days were cut short. And then there's this warning in the midst of this, about false Christs. And then if anyone says, look, he is, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. And note the implication there, it's not possible truly to lead the elect astray. What a comforting thought that is. Now, these false prophets and false Christs are a sign of the entire church age. They're one of the constant signs of the church age. But we know historically that in the time leading up to the destruction of Jerusalem and following that, there was a proliferation of false messiahs rising up within the nation of Israel claiming to be the messiah. And if you look back historically, they led people astray, and they they had meetings and all these kinds of things. And Jesus was warning his disciples in advance, when such a tumultuous time comes, it's tempting for people to think, the end is upon us, and this is Christ. He's here. He's there. This happened in the time of the Reformation as well. There are various sects and groups in the Reformation period when there were religious wars going on and all of that, that that said that the end was upon them. And that Christ had returned, and people were led astray to some degree. But in the midst of this, Jesus' instruction to his disciples is, don't be led astray. If it's, if it's someone claiming to be the Christ, and he's not blazing through the sky in glory with clouds and trumpets and the end of the earth, it is not the return of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd like to make a few lessons of application before we move to the second half of the text. The first point of application is this. The judgments of God are true and righteous altogether. When we look at this description of judgment, we see this prophecy that Jesus gives and the amazing detail in its fulfillment and this love and care for his disciples. We should stand in awe of the glory and the wisdom of God. That is one primary aim of prophecy, to show us the greatness of God. God's judgments are righteous and true. And we think about the judgments of history. You think about the flood of Noah's time and how awesome that would have been and terrible. You think of the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. All of these destructions and many more, the judgments of God are being revealed in history. I remember the other year reading about the end of World War II and General Eisenhower deciding not to waste 
American and Allied troops in trying to take Berlin, but he, he gave the okay to the Soviet Union to take Berlin, and approximately as many casualties as the United States experienced in the whole war Russia experienced in just the taking of Berlin, and Berlin was destroyed. Truman went over there afterwards, and as his motorcade went through, just was incredibly sad at the utter destruction of Berlin. All of these judgments of God in history foreshadow the return of Jesus Christ, the final judgment, that day, that terrible day of judgment for those not in Jesus Christ and the day of salvation for those who are in him, the day of final salvation. And so certainly this prophecy makes us wait upon the Lord as we look to his appearing in the midst of the sinfulness of our day. But secondly, this prophecy reminds us that God's people are not immune from the sufferings of this life, and we must be wise. Isn't it interesting that in the midst of this prophecy, Jesus commands his disciples to take certain actions, that he's not going to just sovereignly do everything, that uh, yes, he's sovereignly caring for them, but there are there is the wise use of the means that God has given us. And so his disciples are called to flee. They're commanded to be alert to certain things. We see here the believer's responsibility to preserve his or her life in the proper use of the means that God has given us. I liked what one of our recent missionaries said about this in his work in northern India. He was describing the changing climate recently in India and how um, a national who described who had this track ministry, who loved to hand out tracks in the marketplace, no longer can hand out tracks these days because of the intensity of the persecution that's going on. It's just not a wise thing for a Christian to do. There's too much opposition. There's too, too much danger involved. In other words, God's people have to be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. There's to be balance and wisdom in our testimony and our stand for Christ. The other month, I read through a new biography of Adoniram Judson, who served as a missionary, many of you know, a very famous missionary in Burma for about 40 years. And it's interesting reading through that biography to see all the different ways Adoniram Judson that all the different tacks he used in dealing with a persecuting king and governor. Uh, and sometimes he had to draw back and lie low. Sometimes he could be more overt. Sometimes he could have meetings in public of various kinds. Sometimes he had to do it very privately and in a concealed way. Judson was being wise. He wasn't being fearful. He was being wise. And there were times when the missionaries had to almost do nothing and, and had to be very careful. Well, that's life in this world. I'm thinking about uh, Chinese house churches these days. Maybe some of you have read about the government is more and more sending its government agents into these house chur- churches to videotape everything that goes on there. So if you get baptized or if you give your testimony or whatever sermon the preacher is saying, it's being videotaped and viewed by government agents. Well, the church in China has responded to that and is seeking to be wise. It's a reminder 
that God's people are not immune from tribulation and persecution and suffering, but we must seek to be wise, whatever the circumstances. And that applies to us with the opposition that we might be experiencing here. But also, finally, a third application of our first point, this warning should remind us of God's great care for those who belong to him by faith. We've seen that God keeps his own, and there's an amazing provision here of Jesus warning the disciples in advance, and and certainly this doesn't mean that they're guaranteed immunity from suffering. Certainly the church suffered in very way, various ways. They had to flee from their homes. We don't know if some of them probably were injured or killed because of all of this. But, and God's normal manner is that believers share in the sufferings of their community, of their nation. God's judgments are being revealed, and we cannot say, we cannot say this judgment is because of this or that. We We do not have the divine perspective, but certainly there are wars on this earth. You think about the terrible civil war and Abraham Lincoln declaring that he thought that this all this great catastrophe was because of the nation's stand about slavery for so many years. Lincoln thought he understood that, at least to an extent. But the point is, there were believers when Hurricane Katrina slammed into the Gulf area. Should we think something was wrong if we would have been a believer whose house was, you know, inundated by that great catastrophe or possibly a family member killed? No, that is part of the suffering of this world. But God always keeps those who belong to him, even if he takes them to glory. And so believers need to be prepared for suffering, for persecution, and even great tribulation. Jesus says in John sixteen thirty three, in this world you shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Well, our second main point is this point. The glorious return of Jesus should fill believers with hope and cause us to guard our hearts. The glorious return of Jesus should fill believers with hope and cause us to guard our hearts. We look at the second half of our text here. I've got a few minutes to do this. I want to look at verses 24 to 27 here. And I want to just give you a feel for the idea that some interpret this, even these verses, to be fulfilled in the events of Jerusalem being destroyed. Because in the Old Testament, there are places where there's descriptions of the sun being darkened, the moon not giving its light, the stars falling from heaven that describe the fall of nations in the Old Testament period. That language is used for political convulsions. And then it says that they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with power and glory. How can that be anything other than the return of Christ? But some see this as the Son of Man coming to judge the city of Jerusalem. I think that's pressing that too far. And then just look at verse 27. Then he will send out the angels. Some take that to be messengers, that is, preachers of the gospel, and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So some take all of these to be referring to the gospel going out to the world, and Jerusalem being destroyed. I think that's pressing it a little bit too far. There are a number of arguments about that. One is 
that that would demand a close connection between Jerusalem being destroyed and the mission to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world. But the fact is, by 70 AD, the gospel had gone out to the known world at that time. And Paul could say in various places that the gospel has gone out to the whole world, the whole world of his time. The strongest argument, I think, about taking verses 24 to 27 in that preterist way is verse 27 itself. And uh, verse 26 and 27, these, this description of the Son of Man coming, because there are other New Testament verses, as you probably well know, like, for example, that describe Jesus coming with the clouds. In the book of Acts chapter 1, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Revelation chapter 1, all of those refer to the second coming of Christ, and there's no doubt about it. The other phrase is that there are angels, and uh, the angels are told, talked about likewise in 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Thessalonians 1, accompanying the return of Christ. Not simply messengers, human messengers, but angelic beings. And then there's this harvest imagery, the angels gathering, harvesting his elect. Matthew 13 uh, has these parables of the end of the age, Jesus gathering the saints, his elect of all time. So I think all the parallel accounts, in my mind, argue that in verse 24, we see the beginning of Jesus talking about that distant mountain peak, his final return. There are some problems with this, and Jesus goes on in verses 28 to 31 to use this metaphor of the, of the fig tree and its leaves come out. And when you see these things, you know that summer is near. Can believers date the return of Christ? Chris addressed this last time. No, believers should not try to date the return of Christ, but... These signs that Jesus talks about in the Olivet Discourse are signs that are always present in these latter days, the whole church age. That's the latter days between the first and second coming of Christ. So that in that sense, these signs remind us that the return of Christ is always near to the eye of faith. That distant mountain peak, the return of Christ, is brought near to the eye of faith. And that is called to encourage us, to comfort us, to motivate us. It's interesting that verse 30 says, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And someone might object, well, see, it can't refer to the second coming of Christ because that wasn't within a generation. And there are different arguments. Maybe some of you have heard the argument that this generation refers to the people of the Jews. The people of the Jews will not pass away from the earth. And really, I'm not a Greek expert, but Greek experts tell us that that's pressing the word genea, generation in Greek. It's pressing that word to mean something that it does not mean. Jesus wasn't saying the Jewish people will not pass away from the earth until all this happens. But that's an attempt to make this fit with the return of Christ. You might say, well, then what is the explanation? If this generation will not pass away and Jesus didn't return within that period, how do you reckon that took place? And the answer is, Jesus is speaking about all of the things he's talking of here that did take place 
and began to take place in that first generation. All these signs that that Chris talked about last time, the wars and rumors of wars, all these must take place, earthquakes, famines. These are the beginnings of birth pangs. They began. They began right away. And then all that happened with Jerusalem happened within that first generation. And you might say, well, Jesus didn't return. Well, Jesus, you can't press the language of Scripture that far. Sometimes people speak with hyperbole, or they say all things to mean almost everything here. Jesus wasn't certainly talking about his return. And certainly it was a puzzle to some degree for the early church. Dr. Rogers talked about this this morning. What's happening? Why isn't Jesus returning? This doesn't say that Jesus was wrong. This generation did not pass away till all these things took place. But he had warned his church to wait. In fact, the illustration that he uses at the end of our text, verses 32 through, through 37, he uses this analogy of a man going on a journey and leaving his servants in charge. Wouldn't you like to have servants to leave in charge of your house, to mow the lawn and take care of things, water the plants? Well, we don't have that, but they did in those days. If you were well-to-do enough, and you'd have your servants take care of things, and you wouldn't want to come home and find that you know, the grass wasn't mowed and you know, the flowers had all died because they hasn't, hadn't watered them and things like that. No, these servants were supposed to take care. And he says, you are like the servants who are in charge of your master's house. And many people would say that even the analogy Jesus uses show that hint that there will be delay. There's the possibility of his servants falling asleep. And he's calling us to stay awake. The coming of Jesus Christ is a great comfort, but it's also an important motivation for us. And I would like to make just two final applications. One is the coming of Jesus Christ calls Christians to watch, not to try to nail down the date of when Jesus is coming. We do not know. It could be tomorrow. It could be a thousand years from now. We do not know. Every generation thinks it's going to be in their generation because all these signs are perpetually being fulfilled. But watching is a spiritual discipline. I like the way Luke puts it in his concluding words. In Luke 21, 34, he says, But watch yourselves, and then listen to him, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. What does it mean to watch? Believers watch by guarding our hearts against sin, by keeping up with the means of grace, giving ourselves to the word of God and prayer and to corporate worship and fellowship, to use our opportunity to redeem the time for kingdom work in expectation of Jesus returning And so we need to guard our hearts. J.C. Ryle comments on this verse, and he says, There is no sin so great, but a great saint may fall into it. There is no saint so great, but he may fall into a great sin. Reminds me of Pilgrim's Progress when Christian is in Interpreter's House, and he sees this man in an iron cage, and the man says, 
I left off to watch and be sober. In other words, he failed to watch and be sober and to guard his heart. The return of Christ encourages us and cultivates within us this motive to guard our hearts. And especially when Luke talks about guarding ourselves against dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life, Matthew Henry makes the application that this refers to the indulging of the appetites of the body and allowing us, allowing of ourselves the gratification of our senses to an excess. Doesn't that describe the West? You know, indulging ourselves. We deserve a break today to an excess. He says, you know, if we just keep giving in to giving ourselves everything we want, we're going to just be immersed in the things of this world. He also describes it as the inordinate pursuit of the good things of this world, the cares of this life. You know, and and none of those things are wrong in and of themselves. But then the other application is to pray. We know that the opposite of falling asleep is watch and pray. Dependence upon God. To keep up your communion with God. That is the first thing that goes by the wayside when we start to fall away. Our communion with God, our private fellowship with our God. Keep up your prayer life for your own spiritual condition, for your own continuing sanctification, but also for the kingdom of God to advance, to pray for laborers to be sent out into the harvest, to pray for the nations to come to Christ, to pray for God's glory to be revealed in this world. My father has a book about his World War II experience, and part of the time he was fighting as a 19-year-old through Holland, parts of Holland, and there were large stretches of flat ground that were just filled with water, and then they'd come to a dike and have to fight their way up this giant dike to take that position and then back down into the wet areas again. And for days and weeks they fought this kind of war in Holland. And my father at one point says that after leaving his boots on for days, he thought it might be a good idea to check to see if his feet were okay, and he took off his boots, and they were, his socks were green. 